Welcome to another Facebook Live interview with C3 Solutions. My name is Erica Anderson, and I'm so glad to be joining you today with my guest, Grace Olmstead. Thank you so much for joining us today, Grace. It's wonderful to be here and to get to see you again. Yes, absolutely. Well, we are going to talk about your book today, but before we do that, I want to tell our viewers a little bit about C3 Solutions. We are the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, and our mission is to protect both America's natural and economic environment so that people can thrive. And so, um, Grace, I want to talk a little bit about your book, um, but before we do that, um, let me introduce you. You are a freelance writer. Um, you're a mom of three, uh, you have an, you have a new one. So that's exciting. She's got a baby. Um, but I have been following your writing for years now and I absolutely love it. You've been published everywhere from the New York times to the wall street journal, Christianity today. Um, I know you write for, um, what are some of the other places you write regularly for? Um, let's see. I've written some pieces more recently for plow magazine and break Ground. I've written for the American Conservative and the Week, um, kind of all over the place. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, uh, and, and ultimately, every author's dream to write a book, right? And so you finally, you've got that opportunity. You published your first book. I'm going to hold it up. It is called Uproot. Am I on the screen? There we go. <laughs> Uprooted, <laughs> Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. It is a beautiful book. I bought it right away. Um, just because I I love your writing so much, and it's and it's so um, I just love your niche of localism and writing about the places where we come from, which is what this book is about. So, um, give us a little a little bit of insight on you. Where do you live, um, and um, what led you to to write this book? Yeah. I grew up in Idaho, in the town of Fruitland, actually, which is right next to Emmett, which is the town I wrote about. Um, Emmett is where my great-great-grandparents homesteaded in the early 20th century and um, had lived there for multiple generations. And then I up and left Idaho behind and came to Virginia for college I met someone in the Air Force, fell in love, and ended up staying out here. So I live in Northern Virginia now, um, and I, my husband and I have three kids, as you pointed out. I worked in the city in Washington, D.C. for probably about three to four years, and then after my firstborn came along, started to move toward working from home, which is what I do now. Um, it's made it so that I can kind of focus on being home with my kids and enjoying them and working more on the side. And I'm really grateful I get to do that. But as I kind of settled out here, I felt very homesick for Idaho. I never really felt like I had left it fully behind, at least not in my my heart and so I wanted to think, though, about why I felt such an ongoing pullback homeward. And I think it had a lot to do with those generations that came before me and how invested they were in their community and how much they loved that community. And so I wanted to write something that considered the ways in which prior generations can invest in our own lives and kind of grow rootedness in their home soil for younger generations to benefit from. And then to ask the question of what we, as those young people who benefit from the past, might owe then both to the past and present and to the future, what we can give back to those communities that raised us and how we can make sure that they are healthy for the next generation of young people to come along. 
And when you moved away from Idaho, what was in your mind at that time? Did you ever think that you might possibly regret that decision? I don't know. I think when I moved away, I was very eager and excited to kind of chart my own course and and discover myself as my own person, which is very common for young people and not necessarily a bad thing when you're um, in your early to late teens and um, setting out for college. There's a lot of good introspection that can come in those years and being able to be a little bit independent can really help you discover your gifts and your dreams in ways that are really important. At the same time, I, when I left Idaho, I began to see all the things I loved about it um, and the things that continue to draw me back home. And so I think that process of leaving actually exposed me to all of those things about Idaho that I perhaps had taken for granted, but, but really did love and appreciate. Yeah. Um, when you, um, you know, when was it when you got to the DC area that you started thinking about writing about your hometown and writing about this sort of localism? I, I don't know if I'm, I'm uh, category categorizing that uh, as you would, but, um, what, what was it that, and when was it that you started thinking this was something you wanted to really focus on in your writing? Well, I started reading the works of Wendell Berry, who is an essayist, farmer, and poet who grew up in a community that sounds like it was in many ways like mine in Kentucky. And he actually left for college and then returned back home um, to dedicate his writing to that home community. And in reading his work, I felt a lot of homesickness for the place I had left and felt very inspired as well to write similar things. At the same time, as I was starting to write in DC, I would still travel home on a regular basis. And these wonderful landmarks that were part of my childhood started to disappear. Um, The Boise, Idaho, Treasure Valley area where I grew up is one of the fastest growing um, places in the Mountain West, and it's all getting suburbanized. So a lot of the farmland that I grew up around and spent my childhood enjoying um, has just continued to disappear over the last several years. And so watching that transformation also gave me this sense of urgency that definitely propelled my writing more toward issues of uh, localism, agriculture, and writing about the built environment. Okay. So you interview a lot of farmers um, in Idaho for the book. Um, You focus a lot on the local farming community. And you just, as you mentioned, so many of them are dying. Um, I think you you quoted in the book something like something like something about like two percent of um, people work as farmers in the United States. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think it's less than 2% at this point are currently employed as as a farmer. And of that population, the majority are over the age of 50, I think close Mm. to 60. Um, So it's also an aging population. We're not getting a lot of young farmers replacing the current farm population. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, most people aren't thinking about that. So my question for you is, you know, why should we be mourning the loss of local farms? And, you know, as the as things have become more industrialized, um, what are we losing um, for the environment and just for communities as we see this happening? Well, I think when we look at the way that concentration in the agricultural industry has just continued to compound over the last several decades, 
there's a few things that stand out to me and stood out to me as I worked on my book. Um, first is that I think it can make stewardship a lot harder, um, both because agricultural concentration oftentimes emphasizes efficiency and usually uh, more diverse regenerative rhythms in agriculture require more diversity, both in what you're growing and if you can, the animals that you have on your farm. Um, concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFO um, operations tend to have a very deleterious impact on the Environment and the communities that surround them. And so we need to ask these questions about how and where concentration has led to ill health and a lack of stewardship. Um, in addition, I think you see the impact in local investment and empowerment. Mm. Uh, my book is about a small farm town. And so while there were some other industries kind of in and around that community, it was really built on its farms and their health. And so within the town itself, you had local processing and distributing facilities. You had a cannery where people could bring their sweet corn. Um, you had freezing facilities. You had um, a lot of packing houses for fruit that they would use to ship it out. The town itself was a hub for all the farmers that surrounded it. As the farms themselves grew larger, as agribusinesses either went out of business or grew larger and kind of transcended that local environment, all of those jobs went away. The ability of those farmers to easily and efficiently and sustainably get their product to market also went away. Um, one of the areas in which agriculture has become especially concentrated is in the meat industry and so now there's very few local or regional slaughterhouses and so that has a huge impact on farmers ability to actually be able to raise those animals and to get them to market and so in a year like last year when we begin to see those bottlenecks in distribution and processing and packing um, fail we see the mass euthanization of animals as well. So, uh, for instance, we saw a whole bunch of hogs euthanized last year as different slaughterhouses or meat packing facilities were impacted by the coronavirus. So uh, local investment and empowerment, I think, is also a big one. And then finally, just people's proximity to the food that they're eating. I think that while it's wonderful and a really good thing that we can get wine from Spain or from Ireland, it's also important that people are able to have access to healthy food that's near them. And food insecurity is just a mounting issue in a lot of communities in the United States. And so insofar as we can really make it so that communities can eat food that's grown near them and they aren't cut off and in what we call food deserts, I think that would be another really big reason why I think this is important to consider. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I started reading Wendell Berry after um, interviewing you on my podcast because I had heard of him, but I hadn't really read him. And then I kept seeing his name pop up and I was like, okay, like clearly this guy has something. So I actually just finished his um, book of essays. It's, I, I can't remember the title of it, but it's a compilation of essays written from like 1968 to 2004. And I was reading it last night and, and there was a, a really particularly good um, paragraph that was just talking about how you know, when people are 
farming and and actually their jobs revolve around you know the health of the earth and the environment and what's happening with the weather and you know the local community we actually care more about the earth and we care more about um what happens because our livelihoods depend on it and because um just the way our communities work depend on um that environmental health and and the soil and all of those things and so I thought that was a really good point because so often we are just sort of detached from what's going on because we don't have to be um, in the know. And so I think these conversations are important to um, to bring people to that sort of awareness of why they need to care because we aren't so you know dependent on those things for our daily lives anymore, um, which is unfortunate. Um, so I wanted to um, also ask you about this. Um, you you talk about stewardship in what you were just just saying, and I think that's such an important point, and and it's one another thing that people don't think about enough. You know, so many we're we're always talking about you know climate change policy and environmental policy and all of these things related to the government, but so much of so much is discounted what we can do as individuals and and locally. And so I guess I wanted to ask you. What are some of the things that people can be doing to be good stewards of the earth, to make individual choices, regardless of what policies are happening? How can we do that at the local level and personally in a way that will actually matter? Mm. Such a good and hard question. Um, And one I'm constantly thinking about myself and hoping to get better at. Because on the one hand, I think people can feel a lot of pressure and guilt about what they are doing. And um, that can make it very hard when you feel like, I didn't get my recycling out this week or something like that. And um, one point I've heard made that I do think is important is that a lot does rely on the way in which larger corporations make decisions just because their choices are so much, they have such a huge impact compared to what you or I as consumers do. And so when we mess up or don't do what we want to, or, you know, have um, a week where maybe we don't, we don't follow the precepts we're trying to live by in terms of conserving um, to give ourselves a little bit of grace and then to pick up and try again. Um, but I definitely think that it's important that we're putting forth those efforts when and wherever we can. Um, and so I've thought about a lot about what Pope Francis calls throwaway culture um, and defines that as the ways in which our society sees people and places and things as disposable and interchangeable. And we approach much in our world as object rather than as subject. Mm -hmm. And so I think my goal, and I hope and pray more of us as Americans can do this, is to reorient our view of the world away from viewing things as object and beginning to see it again as subject, as something to be treated with care with tenderness and with a degree of modesty as well in terms of how we um, treat and use things, uh, whether that's the soil, whether that's um, the items around our house, whether that's just our larger environment in which we're living. Um, Food waste is a huge problem in the United States. We throw away so much food and the impact that that has on our environment and our food system and our neighbors who are food insecure is is huge. So a very simple and important and money-saving thing that a lot of Americans could do is to try and fight back their food waste. Um, Picking up trash on the sidewalk 
um, trying to make sure that you're using your belongings as long as possible and not just throwing them out and replacing them. Learning how to maintain your belongings, to be a good tinkerer, as a friend of mine called it, and figuring out how do I mend things? How do I put buttons back on a shirt? How do I um, figure out ways to reuse something rather than just throwing it away? One of my favorite things to do, actually, is to take uh, broken mugs or um, old used up candle holders or things like that and to fill them with my propagated plants. So I actually have a bunch of them on my desk because I just am able to keep reusing and filling with life these things that otherwise I would have to throw away, which mm. is really fun. Um, planting trees or joining a local board that's uh, focused on planting more trees in the community or caring better for the trees in our community. Um, supporting, if you can, if it's within your financial means, a local farmer um, and if that's not maybe something that's feasible, if it is still financially feasible to buy organic when and where you can. Um, and I think all of these things are just small but consistent efforts to get us toward a way of treating the earth and our communities that's better perhaps than than we are oftentimes currently doing. Yeah, I think those are those are such great ideas. And you know, it's like, you and I both come from the political space, sort of. I lived in D.C. for about nine years. And, you know, so much um, in politics, sometimes it just seems so, especially on the right, can seem so individualized and not, um, it's sort of like, how can the individual get ahead? And and I think it's like, you know, remembering that we are all part of a larger community is such an important part of this. Um I wanted to ask you about, you know, we are seeking bipartisan solutions to climate change and environmental issues. When you're looking at politicians these days, do you do you see ways in which there are bipartisan solutions? Do you think people I mean, on the left, we see um, some more extreme solutions sort of put on the table that make a lot of conservatives very uncomfortable um, do you see ways in which both sides could could be a little bit more compromising? I think we need to seek them out for sure. And I think so, for instance, on the left, one thing that probably doesn't get emphasized nearly enough is that the principle of subsidiarity, which is a Catholic term kind of for the concept of federalism, that what can be done at the local level enables accountability and good stewardship and a sense of empowerment that's that's really important. Um, so while I would argue there are times and places for federal policies to defend and protect, we really want to galvanize and encourage local people in their own communities and regions to do that work themselves and to take ownership of it because they're on the front lines right there and they know and can see the ways in which care ought to be directed. Um, that doesn't mean that there can't be a federal counterpart, though, and that's where I think conservatives could perhaps look for ways to compromise and work with people on the left. Um, just in terms of, for instance, in the realm of agriculture, when um, we see just how far concentrated things have become, it's very difficult for people at the local level to fight that sort of corporate power. They don't have the voices at that point to be able to really 
counteract against a lot of what they're seeing in their communities. And so there need to be strong associational voices, I think, first and foremost, coming alongside those people. But also, I think there are some things we could perhaps consider doing at the federal level to help support local communities and enable them to steward what they have, when and where they've become voiceless. Um, I think there's many ways in which conservatives could oppose something like the Clean Water Act without first considering what they are opposing and why. And I think we're very good oftentimes at saying what government is not for, but I think we also need to present a vision of what government is for, especially what a conserving government might be for. Um, and so that's that's a thought perhaps on the ways in which we could perhaps better do that on the right. And on the left, once again, um, one thing Wendell Berry points out that I really love is when he talks about the stewardship of his local river um, in Kentucky, he notes that it's the people at the local level who are living in and around that river who notice when it's unhealthy and their voices need to be heard and they should be the ones to be on the front lines of protecting and making that river cleaner and better. And so the ways in which we can once again support subsidiarity in the way we approach um, conservation, I think would be an important thing for people on the left to consider as well. Yeah, it just reminds me of so many different causes where people are, you know, tweeting and hashtagging and talking about these big, big issues and they're doing all this online warrior stuff and yet they may not even know who their local representative is, or they may not even, you know, know the local groups that are actually working on the issues in their own towns. I think there's way too much of that when it comes to environmentalism and when it comes to plenty of other issues as well. Um, it, it's those sort of ground up approaches, I think, that truly can make the long-term difference. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I do think there, you know, you've got both sides of that, but if we don't have people that are where they are working to make that difference, um, ultimately it's not going to be long lasting. It's not going to be as deep. It's not going to be as valuable. So I think that's such a good point. Okay. I have one last question. I didn't include this, uh, but I think you can answer it. Um, how does your faith play into why you care about protecting the earth. Um, we just, I just published something at C3 Solutions about, you know, the Christian calling to protect the environment and how it actually protects the vulnerable when we combat climate change responsibly. So, so what would you say about that aspect of yourself? It's the whole reason I think why I found myself writing about this. Um, there's a wonderful book by Dr. Norman Wiersba called From Nature to Creation. And I just highly recommend it for anyone who's really interested about this. But he kind of talks about how if you believe in a God um, who created the world, that should completely transform your vision of how we treat it and who we are within that world. It means that we are creatures and not just consumers. It means that we have a role to play in stewarding and caring for and loving the world around us. And one thing that he points out in that book is that the way in which our vision goes from subject to object is when we begin to see the world as machine rather than as a living, breathing, beautiful thing created by God that we are a part of and supposed to be stewarding and caring for. Um, and in the book of Genesis, uh, we see that God was uh, God was telling man that and men and women that they were to steward the earth and that they were to care for it throughout 
the entire Bible from the Psalms to Proverbs to a lot of the New Testament, you see over and over again, this voice of reverence for and love for the world. And yet in our own society, it becomes very easy to, as you said, detach ourselves from that work and to see the world as object rather than as subject. And so I've felt the more I study both the Bible and the more time I spend reading the works of um, Christians like St. Francis of Assisi or Pope Francis, you see over and over again this call to love and to stewardship that oftentimes requires us to have a much more reverential and gentle approach to the way we treat the world than we oftentimes do in our time. And so, yeah, huge impact. And um, of course, I'm still learning and growing, hopefully, in that regard. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Well, Thank you so much for sharing. Before we go, everyone, I just want to let you know about uh, our new paper that we just put out at C3 Solutions, which is a study of the correlation between economic freedom, limited government, um, environmental performance around the world. Um, you can check that out at c3solutions.org. Um, we would love to, um, we, we have that done by Heritage Foundation's Nick Loris. And so we thought there were some great insights in there. Um, Grace, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. We hope everyone will pick up a copy of your book, Uprooted, um, and check out um, all of her other writing, which is absolutely fantastic. So thank you so much. And I will talk to you again soon. Thank you, Erica. 